And welcome to episode three of Chin Music. We just already screwed this up. It's Chin Music. It's a podcast presented by Fangraphs. I say that too, which is like a weird, bougie th- way to put it. Uh, I'm Kevin Goldstein, national writer. Uh, joining me this week in the ever-revolving chair of, of co-hosts. Uh, you might know him from his previous work at NBC Sports. You might know him from his current work at Cup of Coffee, a Substack. You might know him... From being good at Twitter, you might know him from when his kids go viral. Who knows? But uh, joining us from his luxurious accommodations in New Albany, Ohio, it's Craig Calcaterra. Craig, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, man. Are you great? Are you really great? You know what? I am. Are people great in March 2021? I mean, relatively speaking, I am because I wasn't leaving my house anyway. (laughs) Like, I I literally have had no reason to leave my house since (laughs) roughly 2009. So this was tailor-made for me, other than, right. you know, the half a million people dead. Or they just called it the Craig plan. Everyone just lived <laughs> like Craig. I swear to God, I had people, like friends of mine and stuff, back a year ago saying, how do you work from home? How does this work? Are we going to be okay? Tell us, Craig. Are we going to be? I'm like, it's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> this is easy. I was, I was we were talking before we started recording, but like I, I haven't had an office to go to since... 1990 something eight nine <laughs> wow. and so like yeah they're like from home I'm like okay it's fine that works for me that's fine um not a crazy busy week in terms of baseball news no uh exciting zoom conferences with breakfast clubs from team presidents saying embarrassing things or anything like that uh the biggest news uh, and this is related to the pandemic is we got alt sites again uh nothing anyone should be surprised about but they are doing them again um, in the interest of health and safety and more interest in keeping baseball going should something weird happen and keeping these players safe. Um, you know, obviously, this is all related to the, to the minors reduction and things like that. But the thing that, that it got me thinking about is we're doing this for health and safety concerns, but we're still getting ready to kick off the rest of the minor leagues. And so does that say that those are less important or less safe? Yeah, I, 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 the same week that they're doing this for health and safety, every single day we've had announcements of how many thousands or tens of thousands of fans are going to be allowed in Major League Baseball stadiums. Those are a little bit of a mixed message going on. I think you know the Dodgers or at least the the California governor mentioned it the other day that we're going to allow people in. I think the Brewers or somebody just before we got on here said that they're going to allow fifteen thousand fans or something. So. Health and safety at alternate sites, which implies a lockdown and implies quarantine and all those sorts of things. At the same time, fans are coming in. Bit of a mis- mixed message, I guess. But, um, I, you know, I, I'm a cynic and I'm a conspiracy <laughs> theorist and I'm a pain in the ass. And I generally think ill of almost anything Major League Baseball does because it's now my brand and I have to do that. But... Uh, 
you know, part of me thinking is, well, it's so much easier now to keep guys down in the minors, <laughs> you know, on service time stuff because, well, you know what? We would have had them up on opening day, but, uh, you know, we would have had them up in mid-April, but we're just not going to see any game action until May now. So we'll, we'll wait until then. I, I'm sure that's not like the primary thing, but it's a, a, it's a thing. It's just weird that they're doing this and then also there's kicking off normal minor league season stuff in April. Um, and I, I was actually kind of impressed by MLB's COVID protocols, but I, I don't necessarily trust the same level of attention to detail maybe in the Sally League, or I'm sorry, the, the low A East or whatever it's called right now. Um, <laughs> Have they not given them corporate sponsorships yet? It's all coming soon, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm not sure the Home Depot League is necessarily going to... The, the have... budget budget rate dot re league <laughs> yes the gen, the general insurance league I, like i don't know what I, I don't know if i trust it and maybe i don't know I, I can be cynical about this stuff too especially with covid like but i and we should say thank you to craig for filling in super late as our co-host because our scheduled co-host has covid um so like this this is still happening and like i don't know if i trust the team to um I, i'll you know these teams have such limited offices and such limited resources available to them. Uh, unless MLB is doing something to subsidize what they need to do to really kind of have a, a, a league going, I have no idea how they're going to do this safely. Yeah, I'm not sure either. And and that's part of it makes me wonder if it's just we'll, we'll kick the, the season a little bit because you're more likely to draw in May than you are in April. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that helps a little bit. I, I don't know. I... I, I don't know him personally, but uh, Ken Schnacke owns the Columbus Clippers, the, the Indians AAA affiliate here where I live. And I've I've met him a few times and talked to him a few times. And even though he probably wouldn't recognize me at all if I walked right up to him, but the, the three or four times I've been in his presence, he is it's been in April for some reason because I usually go out to Clippers games early in the season. And he's talked about how no one comes in April. This sucks. You know, I wish the season started in May. And I imagine there's a bunch of uh minor league owners that kind of are are happier with that but uh this is a question maybe i should ask you is it strikes me that if you're going to totally remake the minor leagues and the entire player development process if you started from zero now you probably would have you know these these development sites or these uh you know these alternate sites kind of going on like training camps year-round instead of affiliates anyway right i mean this has gotta gotta have some advantages yeah for sure and and when people would ask me like how i felt about the whole minor league reduction i would say like you look it's gross and i think you know i I just think it's short-sighted but on a pure very uh i don't know cold-hearted just worrying about player development and getting ready players ready for the big leagues level it's what should be done. Right. The yeah, problem that's... is no one took into account what it means for baseball long term in terms of, of overall national marketing and exposure to the game and things like that. No one even thought about that. So they just did it. But yeah, you know, I don't even know if you need four full season, like like three full season league teams and some sort of unlimited 24 seven, 365 thing happening at your complex in Florida, Arizona would be perfect. It's, yeah, I, I got asked the a... cold player thing. I got asked a lot about the minor league thing in the off season when I go on radio shows and stuff because they always figure that I'm good to you know give them a good soundbite about how MLB sucks. But uh, you know what I try to say is yeah, just what you said. It's it, as far as human effects and and what's happening, it, it sucks in about a thousand different ways. That said, if you were just starting from scratch, 
we we wouldn't be doing an affiliate system. We would be doing something like this. And just look no further than there was a story in the New York Times earlier this week uh, about uh, guys who signed in Japan who can't get into Japan now uh, because they they closed the borders and stuff like that. So you know you got guys like Eric Thames and and uh, all the other ones who signed an MVP. Uh, mm-hmm. They you know they're having to train on their own and the the big thing that they're they're saying is an issue is they they have to tape themselves video themselves send it to japan so the so the teams can see what they're doing and everything having that close sort of connection of guys training and everything is huge so this is you know it seems like a thing that is good for for that perspective yeah it works in terms of that it's just bad for fans and bad for baseball um but in terms of i guess improving the big league product maybe that's the only thing major league baseball cares about and that's the only thing that makes money um in a cold-hearted way it makes sense and and you're right if we went from scratch it would be i don't think you'd have four full season teams no no and i i just find it funny about where they're putting these alt sites because you know they didn't necessarily plan for this again and i just saw before we got on here it's like the angels are going to do it theirs in like san bernardino which man that seems like not cool for having to be there. <laughs> just like, we, I mean, nothing, nothing against San Bernardino, folks. It's it's fine, I'm sure, but it's like the the idea of where you're put. Um, uh, it, it, it's like joining the army, and someone says you got to oh, yeah. go out to this. You got to go out to this this site we have out. You're in shipping the out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's it's true. Like, I mean, a lot of teams use colleges that were close. And, um, and obviously that's not available this spring because those colleges are playing baseball. Um, and so, you know, some teams have it very convenient. Um, you know, the Twins are going to have their – it's where your AAA team is, Twins in St. Paul. That's great. Um, and even, you know, for the Indians, I'm sure they'll probably end up in Columbus where the Clippers are. That's great. You oh, know, wow. I can go stalk people. That'll be fun. Yeah. I mean, they, they want these players to be available on short notice, which means a car ride. Mm-hmm. You know, that's basically the goal. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of the reasons they were re, you know, setting the affiliations in the first place because always teams just with the minor league shuffle, you know, every team wants to have their triple A guys close. Um, and sometimes like you end up on the short end of the stick and you can't do that. There was a couple of years when I was with the Astros where the triple A team was in Fresno. Oh yeah. And Fresno's like a really great stadium. The facility is really nice. And it's, it's, um, you know, I, I could go to Fresno every year and, um, but at the same time, like, you know, it's 2.30, you have a 7 o'clock game, player shows up, and, you know, he cut his finger on a can opener like Spencer Torkelson did, and all of a sudden you need to bring someone up. Like, they can't get there that day, right? Oh, you, yeah. All you can do is get them on a flight tomorrow. Well, didn't Oakland have Nashville for a couple yeah, of years? Yeah. And th- there literally was not a direct flight from Nashville to either Oakland or SFO or something. Wow. I, th- I, th- I think I remember Susan Slusser <laughs> saying that. And uh, and the same thing with I mean Las Vegas and New York obviously had direct flights but it's a long flight mm-hmm. uh, yeah that that whole thing was just kind of ridiculous so I I'm a big fan of the realignment of minor leagues to be closer I mean, it I hate driving to Cleveland if I have to now but that's short right <laughs> imagine if you had that's like nothing. seven imagine if you had seven hours to go between your affiliates right right exactly and so it's it's um and we, we you know Astros had the same problem with Fresno you know Fresno you had to fly backwards basically to SFO. To mm-hmm. Houston, and so, um, so that part works, and then it's about keeping the players close. I just wonder if it's just like you know we're going to be like in the health and safety, but they're going to be like bringing in fans in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, and just kind of the the there's a bit of a hypocrisy there. Yeah, I, I, you know, I I talk I was talking about this a lot last year 
why are we starting when this is all going on and everything? But then I think about, I don't know, maybe you're, you're better under club supervision or at least if you're mm. 22 years old, you're better under club supervision than if you're at home. And, uh, I don't know. I, I, I've got kids that are a lot closer in age to minor leakers than, uh, than <laughs> right. I am. And I'm guessing that that development curve is, is still pretty close. And I would rather them be close and in a facility, even if there are some fans around than have them out on their own making decisions. But that's just the old man and me talking. And it's really tough because, um, you know, last year, although a lot of alt sites, I have a, don't have a number off the top of my head, but a lot of alt sites did have COVID issues. Um, because you have 21 year old kids and you're telling them after the game just to stay in their hotel the whole day. That's happening. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, a guy was, you know, a player, I I know of a player who decided to get a haircut and, and the team just had to freak out on him and go like, you're not allowed to do that. You can't do this. You just, you cannot do this. And now you're got to quarantine and get tested three more times before you can get back on the field and sit for 72 hours. And, um, it's really tough to, to ask these players, not even at home, just to kind of go back to the hotel when the workout's over at three o'clock and, and stay there and we'll bring you food. And it's and- got to be harder now, though, even I, I know we're turning the corner and vaccinations are happening and everything, mm-hmm. but we, you know, we still have danger. It's still there's still a lot of risk out there. But these these guys don't live in a vacuum either, right? I mean, we're in a country that basically decided, certainly last May, and then redecided again, and is redeciding now that none of this matters. And we're, you know, if you're in Texas, you don't have to wear masks. If you're right. uh, in a great number of places, everybody's going to Chili's anyway. Um, I don't. It, it's just got to be thankless to be in charge of enforcing protocols or hurting the cats that are, you know, professional athletes in all this when the whole world is going on, or at least this country is going on, not really caring that much. How are, how are you living? Are you super careful? Do you not like, I haven't, I've not been in a, in a restaurant or bar for a year and I, I don't even go grow. I went and picked up my groceries today. Like I don't go grocery shopping. We do it online and pull up and they put them in the trunk and we drive away. Um, like I don't go inside anything and I don't, and I wonder like, am I paranoid? No, no, I, I, we're we're really careful um i'd say the big difference is i i do do the grocery shopping that's like about my only outings at all and part of that is because my my wife has certain dietary issues to where if they sub stuff you know when you order things from the from the pickup they get like then you just can't eat it so she has celiac disease and you you have to read labels for absolutely everything so i've just decided and I'm going into stores, and since my schedule is what it is, I can go grocery shopping and usually do at like 7:30 in the morning on a Wednesday, and there's yeah. no one there. So, but now we we don't go to restaurants. We we went to like one restaurant, I think, maybe like August or September when there was like kind of a lull and a thing came up, and we went to a restaurant, and then we left the restaurant. We're like, no, let's not do this again. So, yeah. But my kids have my kids have been on virtual school since you know for about a year now. Are so they, they still virtual? Yeah, yeah. Well, they have a choice at their school where okay. they could go virtual full time or deal with whatever the school board is deciding. And we made the right choice. They just went virtual entirely, uh, and they will for the rest of the year. Meanwhile, the kids who didn't go virtual, the two thirds of the kids that didn't, have been okay. Now we're now we're all in school. No, now we're all home again. Now half of us are in school and half of us are at home. We haven't had to pay any attention to that, which has been great. Right. It'd be horrible if they were little kids, but I have high schoolers, so it doesn't matter. Do you feel like it's impacted their education? No, not them. Um, I, I think if they were younger, it would be a big damn problem. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, if I had elementary school kids right now, it'd be hard. Or if I had even younger middle school type kids or something socially, it might be hard, but, um, you know, my kids have jobs and their lives are all basically online. And, you know, my daughter is already thinking about college and my son is kind of his own dude. So I don't think it's affected them, but they're probably the exception, not the rule. Right. Um, so spring trainings are good. Do you watch spring training? Again? <sighs> I try. <laughs> I see uh- <laughs> I really ch- so you know what was it was it Sunday or Monday they started and you know every single year for however many years you've been able to watch spring training games at least since MLB.tv came out around but uh, I, I turn it on I'm jazzed I watch an inning and a half and I'm like this sucks I'm not watching this um, and and part of it was because for about 10 years I was covering spring training NBC would let me go either to Florida or Arizona and, oh, okay. I would, and I would go to you know the ballparks and do the do the pretend I'm a reporter thing and then watch games in a very different way and that was fun and it was engaging plus you're in the sun and it's great um, but just sitting and watching the games for their own sake I have a really hard time especially this year with the okay we'll just call it an inning rule and the uh and uh, oh, it's only going to be five innings or seven innings today. I I get that, and I totally support that as far as rules go. Um, but it's not an interesting fan experience for me, so I generally tune them out. I think every third day I will turn on as background noise. I'll turn on a game just because I like it as a background noise. But I'm not watching it like I would watch a regular season game. I always have a game on. Sometimes I'm watching. Sometimes it's background noise. But I am I am pleasantly surprised. Um, and we got there just because of the 75 player rule. That, you know, with 75 players, there are teams that have some young prospects. There are some dudes wearing numbers in the 80s and 90s. And um, I w- there are often times where I will like, which game is late? Like, which game's mm-hmm. in the in the fifth or sixth where you, these kids start to play? Because you know, like, I can actually finally watch this player on my big television and see what he looks like in, in high depth as opposed to some grainy YouTube video. Um, yeah, see, but you, you worked at player development and stuff like that. Like, you know, all these guys, I don't know these guys because I, you know, I, I really don't cover low minors in any real way. Um, I'll talk about a team's maybe top couple of prospects on a regular basis, if that. Um, so it's not something that I feel like I either have to know or that I really know that well. So when I see number 87 come up, I'm like, okay, let me know when they give them a real number and I'll start paying attention to them. So in that way, I'm sort of a Philistine, uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, watching baseball. What team did you grow up a fan of? Uh, it switched um, because I, I lived uh, in Michigan. I lived in Flint, Michigan when I was born until I was 11. And I was so I was a Tigers fan as a really little kid. And But we moved away from there like at the end of 1984. And we moved to West Virginia. And it was good timing, right? Because I got to see the World Series in 84. But um, I moved to West Virginia in 1984, early 85. And the only baseball I could get then was TBS Superstation. So I became, mm-hmm. a, I became a Braves fan. And from 85 on until, you know, I graduated high school and then beyond, I was a Braves fan. And I still nominally call myself a Braves fan, even though I feel pretty divorced from them in most practical ways, the way you sort of lose fandom in a lot of ways. But uh, yeah, the 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 um, Ralph Houck, Sparky Anderson, Tigers and then the Braves are, are how I usually answer that. So, like, I mean, do you feel like you know who the Braves top prospects are? Yeah, the Braves I do. Like, okay. I, like I, I could probably, you know, I, I could probably say something intelligent about a, a decent handful of them, um, but I couldn't tell you who is like three years away. Right, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> you know, I got gotcha. you. Um, one of the things that that kind of came out or, or or happens once the baseball starts is the Twitter highlights, and I'm gonna go on a little bit of a thing here. Um, so. 
we see it all the time, and, and it started like on the first day, and I wish I remembered the picture, but I don't think it matters, um, where there was suddenly like a, you know, there's more than one person doing these, and a lot of them do like really great overall work, but the, the concept of just doing these one pitch videos, like check out this guy's change up. Drives oh, me, yeah. Drives me insane. But this, so this picture is like, look at this change up. And I watched him like, yeah, it's a sick change up. And like, you know, he also gave up two runs in the inning. That was Marcus and, Stroman, how and, I remember, um, yeah. Yeah, Stroman looked great the other day. But like, you know, and, 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 you know, Riley Green, the Red Stop prospect, started the other day. And like his first three fastballs, I think were 101, 102, 103. But he also gave, got a hit. He also <laughs> gave up, he also gave up three runs in the inning. <laughs> you know, you're like, what are we doing here? Um, and so like, I don't know. I wonder if, like, the single play world, sometimes it's just pitches. Sometimes it's just, holy crap, look at this amazing 475-foot home run. You're like, yeah, this guy can't hit. He got one. Good for right. him. You know, I, I don't wonder if these are good for baseball or if we should just celebrate fun single things. They they piss me off in a little ways. I, I, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I kind of like them for fun. The last three days in my newsletter, I've started out with just, I've just embedded a video of a big home run and... Part of that was a joke because I have a really good friend who subscribes and I had started a couple newsletters out just being real critical of MLB about something. And he said, you know, for someone who writes a baseball newsletter, you should probably pretend you like baseball a little bit, which <laughs> fine. So the last three days, kind of as a ha 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 to my friend, I've just started with like, you know, Gary Sanchez home run, um, uh, you know, Shoei Otani home run, whatever, saying, wow, look at that. Um but I don't like it, and the the reason I don't like it most, and with the pitches, I like it even less because uh, I I view, and I imagine most evaluators and people view, I, I view the whole sequence, or I view the setup, or even across three or four at bats. I want to see what happens, right? They, I, it's like this is this is I'm gonna maybe go a little far here, but go far. I'm gonna go far. I, I'll get back to where I'm going. I swear. So remember last year when MLB was on hold and everybody for a brief while got really into like KBO and, yes. and Taiwan and everything, okay? Well, I had a hard time with that. And it wasn't because it wasn't baseball or anything or I thought it was inferior. It's because if I turn on a KBO game, I don't have 150 years of knowledge in my head about what brought us to this point. You have no context. I have no, I have no context. And even if, you know, I need some context. Who are these guys? Where are they stand? What would be surprising about what this guy does or this team does? You don't have any of that. It's hard. Mm-hmm. And I, I view watching highlights the same way. I want to see if, if there was a monster home run, I want to see if that was an adjustment because he got badly fooled the last time up. Or if it's a, a great pitch, I want to see how much better was that pitch because three pitches earlier he set the, set the batter up. Um, and, and it's another thing that's kind of pissed me off about pace of play stuff it's not necessarily for its own sake but because every pitcher has has concentrated so much on making his pitch and every pitch has maximal effort um you know my maybe i'm being an old man but i grew up watching guys get it throw it get it throw it and part of that get it throw it was there was a rhythm and you could tell oh he just worked him up here now he's going to work him down and away and i i like to see that more than i like to see any one executed pitch or whatever Right, right. It's, 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 I just, and maybe it's on me because I'm like, are you, you're showing. I feel like you're now messaging me an endorsement. You're telling me, look how good this guy is. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I, yeah I you don't can't know do it in good. a vacuum. Right. I mean, I could, I could show you tons of, you know, like where would you know, Dallas McPherson would hit a 520 foot home run in spring, and that would be up, and we all get excited. But that doesn't make Dallas McPherson good. 
yeah, there, there's well, how many just guys with great stuff are there out there that you know one perfect pitch was amazing? Yeah. I, I, again, another aging myself thing. Do you remember Kevin Kaufman? Kevin, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a pitcher for the Braves organization, like in the '80s, right? And this is when they were when they really, really sucked. He was thought of as oh he's the coming savior and this was back before anybody knew anything and he he actually sucked and there was no reason to think he was going to be the coming savior but anyway he had pretty decent stuff for the time like he could hit mid 90s once in a while which was rare as shit back then and uh if you saw one perfect pitch and that's all you saw you would think this guy was amazing except he would have 13 pitches that he had no idea where it was going before that one pitch so yeah, I, I just I don't like it that much, and it's fine if it's like a weird thing that happened. Or, yeah, I love those. Or sometimes the overlays are fun because yeah, Pitching Ninja does a bunch of those where you see, uh, you know, they overlay three guys and just showing how great and consistent the arm action is for three different pitches or something. That's interesting to me, even though it seems like it's probably cheating. I'm sure a scout would probably scoff at it, but um, yeah, just seeing check out that slider, whatever. Yeah, it's a great slider. I don't. Are you telling me he's good or do you? I mean, Mark Witten hit Mark Witten hit four home runs in a game once. It doesn't mean yeah, that anything. Do with, do with power. Like there's and there's guys throwing 100 miles an hour in Double A who are literally never going to make the big leagues. Yeah, yeah. Because because they have because they're like Kevin Kaufman. But it's 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 something that's more of a social they're, media thing they're fun though. To watch. It's a social media thing, right? Because there are some people that have sort of just made a brand out of that. Yeah, of, I mean, of their videos and stuff. And I mean, hey, go get that paper. I'm fine with yo, it. But hell yeah, get paid, baby. Exactly, exactly. But I think it's sometimes more of a. There's a line between like this is cool and and baseball boosterism and check out my my website and <laughs> smash that subscribe button and. Hit those likes. Exactly. I don't know. I, I, not that I can criticize any of that because I'm <laughs> in that business now. But it's not telling me anything about baseball necessarily. We're all in that business now. I gotta I'm a whore. It's okay. It's fine. I, I, I will say after eight years off of Twitter, Twitter changed. You changed, man. Yeah, Twitter's not as Twitter's. Twitter can get angry these days. I, it, it can. <laughs> and I, was, I think about that a lot because I've just been chained to Twitter for 12 years now. Um but I, I don't know. I remember just as much terrible bullshit back then. You're right. <laughs> so it's, like, it's it's in volume. It's probably worse. But I, I don't know. I'm like that guy at the end of the war movie when they see the new kid come into the platoon. I don't even want to get to know his name because he's dead already. You know. <laughs> that's that's how I view whoever the new main character on Twitter is. I've survived this long by generally keeping my head down. I got. Right. I'm gonna get home to my wife and kids. Damn it. <laughs> Um, I, I, I wrote a piece that went up today and I, I didn't read it. I'm sorry. That's fine. I don't <laughs> it. Nor should you. Um, and, and then I say this, like, I, you know, I submitted it. I'm like, oh, this is kind of fun. And, you know, every time someone, it's at Fangraphs, every time someone, uh, comments on the piece, like at Fangraphs.com, I get an email, right? Yes. And I'm used to kind of the normal flow of those and stuff. And this thing went up and like my email just blew up. I'm like, this thing's like really, people are really engaging with this. And I was kind of surprised. It was just a fun thing where um, there was a brief, like, you know, how Twitter all has its little world. There's a brief kind of kerfuffle in Chicago baseball Twitter last week where Ian Happ was on the radio and Ian Happ talked about how important RBIs are. Oh, yeah. Um, and oh, how, I saw you tweet about this yeah, about 250 how, RBIs or something. Yeah. RBIs are a skill and, 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 and they matter. And, and, and I understand that goes against normal thinking. Um, and there's a whole separate discussion to have about why anyone gives a shit about how players look at numbers. But I decided to have some fun and see, like, is there a way I can make RBIs matter? And so I took 
Miguel Cabrera's 2012 season, the, the triple crown year. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, he had 622 at bats, if I remember these numbers right, and 174 came with runners in scoring position. And I said, let's make him go 174 for 174 in those runners in scoring position situations. And he goes 0 for 400, whatever, and the rest. <laughs> and I'll use the same kind of extra base per hit ratios and RBI per hit ratios from, from Miguel's 2012 season. And I end up with a guy who hit about 270-something, slugged like 450, and drove in 250 runs. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I called him Kigel Mabrera. <laughs> and so Kigel um, drove in 250 runs. And that happened. And it might not measure in some sort of war measurement. It might not matter. But that actually happened on the field. He drove in 250 and slugged like 450 or so. And so my question was, is this guy now an MVP candidate? Does this guy deserve MVP votes? Because, you know, beyond the kind of normal metrics we use on base, slugging, uh, more advanced stuff like like war, WRC+, that kind of stuff. um, He drove in 250 runs. That happened. That really happened. And, and sometimes what matters on the field happens. And so he drove in 250. And so I, I, I sent like a, a message on our Slack channel and said, hey, I have a little thought experiment. I'm going to tell you about this player. And I just want you to react in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a paragraph. And so I'm going to ask you this. So Kigel Mabrera, it's 270 with like 25 bombs. It's like 270, slugs 450, and drives in 250 runs. <laughs> Is he an MVP candidate? And I, I, since you are talking, I, I called up the article and I'm now seeing your comments about the slack. And I'm basically with Meg on this. And her comment was, aw, geez. <laughs> <laughs> because, again, to, to continue the platoon surgeon analogy, I fought in the 2012 MVP wars. And, and I, I remember the men who fell taking flack for Mike Trout uh i don't know I'm, I'm getting out of hand with this but yeah he's an mvp because and this is a very different answer than i would have had in 2012 because i used to care about shit in 2012 in general just like about anything in life i used to care and i don't anymore and so I you've, got, you've matured i've matured I, I don't know i i've gotten to the point where you know you you come full circle with anything if when i was 12 and you look at like the baseball encyclopedia and you see what hack wilson did you freak out and you're like oh it's amazing and then you realize oh no that's silly young man you don't understand how player value works and now i've gotten very good with the place of making the distinction between that's a cool ass thing that happened versus that is indicative of inherent value. I, I can just go back and forth between those two things, and I don't find any friction there, mostly because I don't care about awards. And the only time you find the friction there is when you care about awards and Hall of Fame stuff and things like that. And I've just kind of moved past that. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm better than anyone. I just I just can't anymore. I'm I'm washed as hell. I'm totally with you. Like I can You could ask me to na- name the last five MVPs, and I would fail. Yeah, I, I could maybe do it, but it'd be hard. And, you know, so the thing is, I would say, one, as a practical matter, yes, he would absolutely win the MVP because that's just how people roll. And even though most of the voters now have, yeah, have no, moved beyond yeah. that, I still think at that point they'd be like, hey, that's something. Yeah, no, I think so, too. But th- my question is not should is not like would he, it's should he. Yeah. I, no, no. You're I, I 250 runs, Greg. Sh- hey, it happened. 
and you know and if i if i was walking underneath a third story window when the baby fell i'm a hero but you know yeah, but exactly but, I, but yes you are a hero like this is what i'm saying like this is it's it's i understand that there's an opportunity piece here but it happened like forget about like any sort of like change. it happened it, it, we can see it and it happened you are a hero see this is how internet poisoned i am though now because now i'm thinking would my saying he's not an mvp just because i'm trying to get heat <laughs> <laughs> And I, so, he's I think, gonna fight me about exactly. This. Yeah, fight. Yeah. No, he's not. I'm I'm voting for the guy with who who drove in '92, but got on base. I don't know. Um, I would not have as I sit here today in 2021 with the brain that I have now. I would have no problems whatsoever with him winning the MVP. But if there was somebody like 2012 Mike Trout or whoever, or even the real 2012 Miguel Cabrera, um, I wouldn't. I, I'd vote for them and not him, just because I can't. You know, everybody has their different definitions of what an MVP means, but I I just tend to think it's the best player, however you measure quality. And I I would not be able to get away from everything that I've learned in the last 25 years about how that works. Uh, Yeah, I think I would just go for, I I believe in the value proposition in in that acronym, and I'm Sky Droving 250, and it matters. I know it's not repeatable and doesn't measure well in some sort of any sort of base out based metric, but it's real. It just happened. I mean, I can't tell you how hot I would be over this five years ago, even. <laughs> but like right now, I'm like, I'd be fine. I wouldn't even get into the argument. I would probably look at it. I would make a judgment. I'd say, ah, you know, that was weird and fluky and uh, a function of opportunity. And that doesn't mean he was that good. It, just, drop it, Craig. Drop it. Move on. But hey, I know it's good. a function of opportunity. And I, I agree with that. But it still happened. That's the, that, yes. that's kind of my point. Like it's not about it's it's, it's about what actually happened on the I, field and what happened is he drove in 250. Yeah, and that's that's the thing, right? When you talk to I, I don't even know what words people use anymore. This is how washed and trapped in 2004 I am, but you know, when you talk to stat heads versus non-stat heads or whatever, um I still think that there's a very big problem with people making that distinction between that's a cool thing that happened or that was a good thing that happened versus that is inherent value it's like a valuable thing that happened i mean think think of i don't know just think of any scrub right now who if they just had the flukiest season ever in 2021 and you know few of them yeah exactly it's just like there would be a huge and fairly serious pushback uh, against anyone saying that that guy's having a great season if he wasn't actually great in any way before and if he fell off later and then there would be a hasi he actually wasn't good but it's like no he had an amazing 2021 season and i that's that's why it gets so difficult to get into all those kind of arguments but i you know i i wouldn't vote for him maybe i'd vote for him and lie i don't know what i do <laughs> but in the end you wouldn't care right that's the bigger <laughs> thing I, and i i'm really trying not to like do this whole you know i've achieved consciousness kind of thing but this whole trip for me back in december during the hall of fame stuff i i just decided this year and i've been thinking about it in previous years but this year i just decided i am completely done and i wrote a whole thing about the hall of fame about how i just don't care anymore about all the arguments are are in service of the arguments and they don't tell me anything and it obscures more than it than it illuminates because you know guys who don't make the hall of fame tend to get forgotten and tend not to be talked about and we tend to talk about really really good players as somehow failures or somehow less because they didn't make this 
this uh, leap into this privately owned museum from a <laughs> legacy sewing machine fortune. I like people think the Hall of Fame is like a branch of government or something. Right, at this point. right. It's like it's really a private museum that was put there to you know spur t- tourism in this backwater town. And Cooperstown's nice. Don't get me wrong; it's a pretty place. But I, I, I like, like the lovely. beer. I like the beer more than I like you know the Hall of Fame with the plaques. But the uh, uh, I, I just I don't want to, and, and I think anyone who does what what I do, or is really into baseball analysis, or is really inside the game for a long time, I think there's a risk of sort of losing sight of what you like about it to begin with. I, I I'm not saying everybody does that. I'm not saying that people who are experts, you know, don't love the game, but I found myself forgetting what I really loved about the game, uh, because I was getting drawn into all these sorts of like debates that we've created. And I, I don't want to do that. I want to remember Jack Morris. I mean, Jack Morris, I think, is personally a dick because I met him and I didn't like him. But uh, <laughs> and, and he did really bad things. But I yeah. want to remember Jack Morris as a pitcher that I rather enjoyed watching pitch in the early 80s and not as some litmus test on what level of analysis we could put. I, I just I think back and I'm like, wow, how much time did I waste arguing about whether Jack Morris should be in the Hall of Fame and why I couldn't have just said Jack Morris was a pretty good pitcher. And I enjoyed watching him pitch and let that be it. So I'm trying to get better about that kind of thing. Do you know my great Hall of Fame theory? No. I, important to note that I am the only person who would use the adjective great in the description <laughs> of this theory. Um, so I, I, I think the Hall of Fame should be the Hall of Fame, emphasis on fame. Mm-hmm. And it should be about like the players that you need to have a real discussion about the history of baseball. Yeah. And so like literally... This is going to sound, I'm going to say it anyway, and I get ready to to throw your phone if you're listening on your phone. Like, Jack Morris is easily a Hall of Famer for me. Mm -hmm. Burt Blylevin is not. And like like Daryl Strawberry is in the Hall of Fame for me. Right. I I think there's something defensible about that. I I don't think I ever would have made that argument. You know, I I look at Burt Blylevin, I I looked at all the numbers like everybody did. Um, But it's true. I, I grew up when both of those guys were pitching. And no one ever talked about one. Everybody talked about the other. And and there's something to be said about that. I don't think that yeah. that means that Jack Morris was better than Burt Blylevin because he wasn't. And I'm not like going no, back. No, nor was he. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. But but that whole, can you tell the story of baseball without this guy test is actually fairly useful in a lot of ways. And that's why people are going to argue about David Ortiz or something next year. And I'm like, you cannot tell the story of baseball over the last 20 years without talking about Big Poppy. Yeah, you just dude, can't. Yeah. First, first year walks right in in the KG system. Right. Well, no he probably problem. will in the real system too. But I, I, I've been surprised to see people think that's not the case. Well, I, because I, I, know, I know he's people, got, I know they, he's got a steroid connection. Well, people tied themselves up in the steroid stuff, and now even people that want to get rid of voters who want to get rid of that are, are still going to probably just hold themselves to it out of misguided intellectual consistency. But, um, but yeah, there's something to be said about the can you tell the story? Now, my view is you don't keep Blylevin out because of that. Um, you could, you could also add guys who are really good because if anything, you know, let it be educational. Like, wow, I had, mm-hmm. well, I mean, the first time that I went to Cooperstown, I was probably like nine or 10 years old and I didn't know most of the guys in there because when you're that age, right? the only guys, you know, the only guys I knew were like the most recent guy I knew was Al Kaline and, you know, <laughs> a bunch of the big, big names like, you know, Aaron and Mays and whoever. Um, so I, you learn about all these dudes and I remember get leaving 
Cooperstown, leaving the Hall of Fame, getting in our RV, which we traveled up there in, and grabbing my copy of the baseball encyclopedia, which I always traveled with, and looking up all these names that I'd never seen before. So there's something educational about it. So I would add them. You know, Yadi Molina is another good one. He's gonna he's gonna cause people to lose their minds here because there right. are, we could probably think of five catchers that are never gonna smell the Hall of Fame that are actually more valuable over the course of their career than Molina. Molina is probably gonna be a first ballot guy or or get in there eventually. Yeah. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I don't care. I, it's a guy who was an important player for one organization for two decades, multiple rings, yeah. fan favorite, uh, said something about the state of baseball during his career, or whether it's about the value of defense, uh, the value of just playing every day. Um, there's, there's a lot the value of, these... of things beyond what's on the baseball card as well. Yeah, yeah. There's I'm a that huge too. believer in catcher value beyond the uh, beyond the numbers. Yeah, I think with catcher, that's definitely the case. So yeah, he absolutely. You know, I'm not going to say he should be because I don't care on the voting side. But if he gets in, I'm not going to cry <laughs> about it. I mean, who cares? I think it is a higher mindset. I think this brings you peace. It has brought me peace, and it, it's <laughs> and it's it's not a coincidence that it also was a mindset I was able to fully and finally assume when I wasn't writing for a for a media site that was like, hey, what do we? I need five things on the Hall of Fame this week. You know, that's just not a thing right. I have to do anymore. And how much of it is driven by, you know, content needs and media and stuff like that? I mean, we didn't have these arguments really before the internet, not because people couldn't have them necessarily on social media platforms or in forums, but because you didn't have the writers and stuff that were writing as often or a, a maw that needed to be fed as much as the current content maw does need to be fed. I mean, a guy had like two columns a week maybe, and maybe one was about the Hall of Fame. And uh, we just didn't have this need to create controversy yeah. and argument. Yeah, the, the everyday content machine uh, creates mistakes. Yes, or it just it causes us to focus on shit that shouldn't matter. So we have to focus on something. I, and again, I write five newsletters a week. I got to focus on other meaningless shit now. So, well, let's let's take a break on meaningless shit, and uh, you'll listen to Ranges right now, and then we'll come back and talk to Steve Albini about how COVID has affected the music industry. Stick around. legend well known to uh more normies for some of his recording engineer work with bands like nirvana pixies and literally thousands of others he also owns a world series of poker bracelet and is a hell of a cook and joining us from his luxurious accommodations at the world famous electrical audio studios in chicago illinois it's steve albini steve how are you i'm i'm grand or as good as one can be during a global pandemic 
but we'll take it. It's fine. That's a way better answer than mine when <laughs> we were in the first segment. I was like, oh, it's great. The world's fine. Nobody's great. Everything just revolves yeah, around everything me. Everything is awful. So given <laughs> that there's a baseline of awful, you know, I'm I'm fine. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you about how COVID has affected the music industry. You are, uh, for lack of a better term, a music industry professional who yep. derives income in two ways. Uh, one as in a band, namely Shellac, and, and the second owning electrical audio, which is a recording studio and producing records. Um, yep. Let's start with the first part being in a band. Um, it, it's 2021 or even more. It's the 21st century and, and no one buys records anymore. And it, it, I think it's fair to say bands make their money by touring. Yeah, um, by and large, although um, there is a niche audience for vinyl records for people who are um, who want to curate a physical collection of their music and carry it with them from place to place for their lives, you know. So they're, the vinyl records are the one format that does still sell, mercifully, because my band has long been committed to the vinyl format. Um, I, we were actually, we were on tour a year ago when uh, the lockdown started, and it, at the, it was very, like we were, it was literally a year ago that we were on tour. And it was during this, um, like the, the next two weeks, during that period, it went from being, huh, this COVID thing seems like it's going to actually be a thing. And then, ooh, it's pretty bad some places. And then it was like, yeah, we should just stop. We should not do this. We should definitely not be the reason people congregate in large groups right now. And Was that a choice you made or did you start having shows canceled? We were debating it internally uh, while we were on tour, like driving from one show to another. Um, we played in Chicago and everybody was kind of jocular about it. Like nobody was wearing masks. There was no social distancing. Like the, the, the closest, the nearest evidence of it was like people weren't hugging and weren't like shaking hands. Like everybody was like doing their like elbow bumps and foot kicks and stuff. But there were, even that was kind of a, there was almost a jocular kind of uh thing about it like like you know let's do this just in case but it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. um and then the next night we're driving on our way to milwaukee and we're hearing these radio reports uh, you know reports in the in the on the radio of cities that are going to shut down businesses and we're like is this real is this really actually like a thing and we we played a show in Milwaukee. I want to say it was on the 10th or something uh, of March last year. Um, we played a show in Milwaukee. The show had been booked at a smaller venue and had sold out instantly, so it had been moved to a larger venue. And this larger venue could accommodate... It was larger than we needed. Like, it could easily accommodate 1,500 people or something. And there were, like, eight or 900 tickets sold. So the venue was kind of oversized. Um, and when we got there, um, uh, we kind of, there was, there was some evidence that businesses were starting to be more aware of social distancing. Um, and we set up and got ready to do the show and the crowd looked really thin. And so I spoke to the promoter. I was like, you know, I'm, you know is this... Did people get the word that it had been moved or whatever? And he said, yeah, the COVID thing, people are just not using their tickets. Like they had, 
eight or nine hundred tickets sold, and like a couple hundred people just never claimed their tickets mm. and didn't come to the venue. And I mean, on one hand, that was good for the in the sense of social distancing, but it was like a real wake up call for us. Um, and then the next day's show was at a very small venue in Madison, Wisconsin, and we're like, do we want to play this show? Do we have any, you know, is there a reason for us to do this uh, other than that we've committed to doing it? And we thought, well, let's gauge the reaction tonight uh, and then make the call the next day. The last show was going to be in Minneapolis. And we played the show in Madison, and everybody was keeping their distance after the show. Like, during the show and after the show, like, people weren't coming up to the front of the stage. Everybody was, you know, uh, everybody was physically distancing, and nobody wanted to touch each other, and nobody wanted to, like, really have any kind of a communal event. And it was just like, yeah, let, fuck it, let's just not do this anymore. And um, so we arranged to get... The opening band that was with us was uh, Loki's Folly. They're from Minneapolis. They were going to go back to Minneapolis anyway. Um, so they gave our sound woman, Z, and our drummer, Todd, a lift to Minneapolis. And uh, Minneapolis, on that day, actually, Minneapolis also canceled large gatherings. Mm -hmm. So it's dubious whether we would have been allowed to perform anyway. I, th I think the venue that we were playing at was just under the side. The first Avenue was just under the size that was meant to be closed, but, uh, they, they canceled the show anyway. <clears throat> um, so like literally we were on tour and had our tour interrupted by the beginning of the lockdown period. Uh, and then we came back to Chicago and we tried to, you know, I had a session that was booked for the next day. So we started that session. We mounted that session. While that session was underway, Chicago announced its lockdown. So we wrapped that session up and locked down the studio. And then the studio was in mothballs. Like, uh, you know, the power was off in the building. We didn't come in. Um, we had no, absolutely nothing going on in the studio for a period of about six weeks. Um and then after that, the city phased in opening and we had, you know, internally in the studio, we had a pretty big debate about how we were going to conduct ourselves. Like, do we want to be the reason for people to congregate and put each other at risk? And like, well, we can do it if we do it with social distancing and we have and everybody is masked and we're very scrupulous about disinfecting. And so we've been conducting our sessions that way ever since like um everyone has to be masked inside the building at all times uh we encourage people to wash their hands all the time there's no lodgings here anymore we have a skeleton staff skeleton crew in the building at all times minimizing the number of people in the building every surface every instrument every chair every microphone everything that anyone could come in contact with is disinfected between sessions like after I finish having this conversation with you, I'm going to wipe down all the surfaces in the area that where I've been speaking into my laptop. I'm going to wipe down all the furniture that I've been sitting in, the telephone that I touched. Like, that's all going to get wiped down with disinfectant wipe. Uh, and before anybody else comes in this room, this room will have been vacuumed and dis disinfected, you know. Um, 
so we've been conducting all of our sessions that way ever since, and it's a lot of extra work, but I don't I just wouldn't feel comfortable doing it any other way. The pandemic sort of generally has been brutal on the music scene. Like we had bands on the calendar scheduled to come here from Europe and all that travel has been canceled. We had some bands scheduled to come in from Canada. That's all been then that's all been canceled. Um we had a band that was, there was a brief window when travel was allowed from Japan and there was a Japanese band that was on the schedule, Mono, and they came over and did their record here in near complete isolation. Um, but the majority of our sessions, the sessions that we had on the book were canceled or postponed indefinitely. And, uh, you know, bands can't, they can't get together to rehearse and write songs, much less play shows or do tours to raise money to to make a record you know it's and for for bands who you know this for, for when their primary income is is playing shows and being unable to play shows i mean have we have we lost bands because of this just so bands like like we can't play i, I got it i give up we gotta do something else yeah uh, i don't know that that many in the states not that many bands um, are full-time enterprises, jobs, right. you know, like the, the, the profile of a band, band musician in the States is pretty much that you are a, a working stiff of some kind, uh, and you have a band that's a passion project of yours and that the independent labels and the venues that operate in the States kind of operate on the same way. Like the venues are the one place that can make a go of it as a business, just because, you know, if you're selling liquor in a good time you can get it, enough people through the door to make a living at it usually um but the the uh, the most of the labels in the states for example the independent labels are run as a second job or as a side job a side hustle for people who've made their money some other way and uh you know there people aren't going into record stores you know people aren't going to to clubs people aren't uh, there are you know there are no festival shows there are no tours so um the whole of the music economy has really sort of ground to a halt and what has persisted are these kind of uh, correspondence collaborations like um drag city has been doing has released quite a few of those uh, bonnie prince billy and bill callahan have been doing these collaborations with various musicians and songwriters and they've been releasing those those have all been done by correspondence um and that's becoming a working method for a lot of people um then there are you know like solo projects one-man band kind of scenarios i know um azita yosefi has a new album coming out uh, that she did and i think she did it all entirely herself mm -hmm. during the lockdown um during the quarantine so, I mean, apart from those very specialized things, just like a normal band that gets together to rehearse their songs and write their songs and then performs shows to raise money and then records records when they can, like that kind of thing has basically ground to a, a, a complete halt. Is there any sense for like how many fewer releases there have been this in the last 12 months? I don't, I don't have any inside info on that i know that our sessions like we typically would be booked one studio or the other would be booked every day and 
I'd say two weeks out of the month or three weeks out of the month, we would have both studios running simultaneously. Um, so we were busy. We were quite busy all of the time pre-COVID. Since the beginning of the lockdowns, like once we reopened um, after the initial lockdown period, um, there have been some weeks, like entire weeks, where not a single thing was going on in the, in the studio. Like no recording of any kind was going on in the studio. Um, and there have been some months where we, you know, if we had to rely on that income to make payroll, we wouldn't have been able to. Like we had to furlough employees on a rotating basis for a month. Um, there was a uh, there was a leave program that the city of Chicago had called FICRA leave, I believe, for um, parents who took could take time off from work to care for to do home care for a, a child, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two of our employees qualified for that. So they were able to take a month off at a small reduction of their salary in order to, to do that. The, uh, the furlough um, was rough. That was, uh, that was the lowest point for me was when it, you know, it's always been a point of pride for me that I've been able to make payroll. You know, it's been uh, a long stretch, you know, nearly 25 years I've been running a studio as a business. And it's always been a point of pride to me that I've been able to keep my head above water that whole time when a lot of the more sort of institutional, more professional places um, were struggling. It's, I've, it's always been a point of pride to me that we've been able to tread water and make our way through it. But um, this, you know, we're really stretched completely to capacity now. You know, we borrowed every penny we could borrow. Um, we got all of the PPP money we could get. Um, you know, we're stretched to an absolute breaking point, And I think that's, but we're hardly, you know, that's hardly unique f- for us. That's, mm. that's true for pretty much everybody that's in our shoes. It, is there any sense, um, you know, everybody's heard about the payroll stuff. You mentioned the PPP. Um, people are hearing about the stimulus thing coming. Has there been anything either targeted or talked about specifically for the music industry, for, for the arts, for theater, for things like that? Or, or is it just completely on its own? There have been some things specific to live performance that have been talked about, like various set-asides in various programs. Uh, you know, a lot of that is still in pending legislation, and, and it hasn't come out yet. So, um, it like always, we're, we just sort of have to see what's available when the time comes to apply for it. And, and, and what of the venues, you know, places that, it, not necessarily, you know, not rock and big arenas, but but clubs whose entire life is to to have live music shows. Everything from, you know, in Chicago, everything from like you know Metro, which I think is eleven hundred or something like that, to like you know a place like I don't know, like the Beat Kitchen, where it's you know you're playing in front of fifty people. Like, how are these people? Yeah. you know, and these a lot of them were just flat out shut down. And well, there's there's a kind of a quirk in the licensing laws in Chicago where it's extremely difficult to open a tavern in Chicago, like just a tavern. So almost all of the, the places that have opened in the last 20 years or 30 years, almost all the music venues that are small bar music joints are technically restaurants. There's an adjoining restaurant that is a part of the business, 
and the tap room that's part with that's where the the music is performed is part of the business of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So some of those places have been able to maintain some, you know, you know, maintain by selling takeout food or you know the brief periods when restaurants are open. Um, so for for the very small scale venues, that's actually the way that that licensing works has actually I think been a a, a little bit of a, a window for them. For the bigger places that are just music venues, um, that you know they are completely taking it on the chin. It's been a year now, um, and they're just you know if they survive, it's going to be kind of miraculous. I mean, are we on the verge of, of flat out losing venues? I would uh, I would assume that a large number of them are going to go under and won't come back. Uh, that's an assumption I'm making, but I don't have any inside dope on any of them. And, and you know, with things starting to get better, and with some of I don't know personal opinion overreaction, how quickly we're opening things. Have you seen the recording studio business pick up a bit? Uh, there's optimism. Like there's the frame of mind is a little bit more positive than it was in the depths of it. You know, at the end of the summer or this fall. Um, but in terms of business picking up, uh, it's, you know, all of these things need to kick in sequentially. Like first people need to be, feel safe to gather and then they need to start gathering in meaningful ways. Like they need to start getting together to rehearse and gin their band up again and write some songs. And then they're going to need to be able to play some shows to raise some money. And then they're going to need to be able to, you know, organize their lives and schedule it and get on the books. And so I don't expect this is not going to be a scenario where, you know, like come a certain day, they'll flip a switch and we'll be back open for business. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not like a pizza parlor where if you open the doors, people will come. There's a lot of preparatory or, or a lot of, you know, a lot of run up that needs to happen externally from the studio where the the bands and the labels need to get their shit together and need to generate enough money to be able to invest in making a record before we can start working. Is there anything that, that, yeah, obviously I think everyone agrees like kind of the governmental response to this has been a shit show, but is there anything you feel like the music industry has done wrong in response to this? Well, mercifully, like, a lot of the other, a lot of the, like the, some of the restaurateurs and some of the bar owners, especially people that are, that are more sort of cattle call places, like they, they have just been wanting to get the doors open and get people in there. Right. And I think the, the recording industry, I've seen a remarkable um, consciousness in the recording business. Like everybody I know that does this is concerned about protocols, is concerned about safety, is concerned about you know, not causing spreading just for the sake of business in a way much more responsible manner than I have seen exercised by, you know, barbershops and, and (laughs) taverns. And, you know, like the other day I, I, uh, I, I walked by the sidewalk dining. I say the other day, it was a while ago, the sidewalk dining part of a, of a, of a business. And it, uh, and it was just a, it was just an outdoor indoor thing. It was just you know people were packed in this place, wolfing down their food, 
and it happened to be a tent rather than a building. Right. That's a, that's a Chicago thing. Like I've seen in other places, you know, places where it's actually warm, but like it's Chicago. It's it's we just got to Mark. It's cold out, and and you know, we say the same thing all the time. Like we see these places, like you're 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 outside, but you're still inside. Yeah. There's just nothing. I have to say, I feel like the people involved in the music scene, like have been have been way less mercenary about it. Like bands have said, "We're canceling our tour. We're taking the financial hit. We're not doing it." You know, in advance of them being told, "You must cancel your tour." Mm-hmm. You know, you must take a hit, and. Um, the same with studios, like uh, the, the people that I know that run studios, every one of them has, has, you know, extensive COVID protocols that they've got in place. Like I, I had to go to New York to make a record in the fall and the studio that I worked at in New York, um, had two studios and they made a point of keeping the populations of the two studios separate. They limited the number of people in, coming in and out. Um, everybody was masked up the whole time. Like like everyone is being conscious about it. And I feel like the music scene, people in the music scene recognize that the health of the music scene is sort of dependent on the, the greater health and the retreat of the pandemic overall. And I think everybody's genuinely trying to do their part. So I'm, I'm heartened by the way the music scene has responded. You haven't seen this kind of militant, you know, let her rip, tear the bandaid off kind of mentality that you've seen in a lot of other, mm-hmm. you know, like sports and uh, nothing personal, Kevin. No, don't believe me. I, I'm not. Going, uh, I'm not going to any games. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, you know, like when I think about going to a baseball game now, it just seems like an impossible fantasy. It just seems like absolutely unfathomable that I could be, you know, in this throng of people with our mouths open cheering. <laughs> you know, it just seems it's like a blood orgy. Like that's. So- <laughs> It's so alien to the way I've been living for the last year. I just can't even fathom it. I mean, I I know that when I am in a baseball stadium watching a baseball game under proper baseball conditions, I know for sure I'm going to break down and, and cry like a freaking baby. It's yeah, it's it's funny. I was talking to a friend last week, a guy who works for a team, and he's at spring training at his Florida camp, and he's like, uh, "Yeah, we're done." I was like, it's, "I'll see you later." He's like, "Yeah, give me t- hit me up. Give me a buzz when you're down here." And I'm like, I'm not, no I'm, I'm not, yeah, I, I'm happy to buzz you when I'm down there, but it's going to be 2022. Like, I'm not, I'm not traveling until I get two jabs in my arm, first of that, all. That's a good name for a, your podcast, though. You should change it to Blood Orgy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so is there any positive to come out of this? Or have you found, like you talked about, you know, people recording solo stuff, people doing you know, some of the you know, stuff yeah. kind of piecemeal. Is there any positive? Like, has this lent to some interesting creative work or is it just the whole shit show in the world? Like really, does that, it's just a damper creativity as well. Well, since everything normal and conventional is off the table, what has been happening during this period, what has been going on has been some of the weirdest shit imaginable. You know? <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> nice. Uh, and I think that is, it's hard to call it a silver lining. I'm going to say that everything about this is tragic and it's all awful, that we've lost a year of our lives to this stupid shit, right? Um, but what has made it out of the pipeline in this last year has been some of the strangest music and some of the most personal music that people have been able 
to, to put together. Like, um, I'm fu- very fond of the English band, the Sleaford Mods. Oh yeah, so I just actually they, there's a I just watched the documentary on them on Amazon a couple nights ago. And they did a um, their most recent album is it has a series of collaborations with them and uh, like-minded female artists. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way they make their music is a very personal thing. It's just two guys. One guy comes up with the music on, and the other guy complains over it. Screams class warfare stuff over it. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically, it's basically, you know, I, it's a long time brilliant. ago, I described it as a drum machine with complaints. Now, <laughs> now it's more more accurate to say that it's, um, you know, clever beats with complaints. Um, but the because it's just the two of them, because communication and execution can be so simple and so easy, it doesn't require a big rigmarole. It doesn't require, you know, long rehearsal periods and you know, a lot of extra equipment and stuff like that. I mean, literally, you can do it on your from your couch. Yeah, if you ever see this band live, if people have not heard of it, hey, look them up. They're amazing. But it's, it's a, a, you know, one guy just stands there, hits a button on his laptop to start the song and just kind of bobs along to it, and the other guy screams into a mic. That's the whole show. Yeah, and it's great. It's absolutely gripping, and it's like one of the most clever ways. I think they have taken, like, the, the sort of democratization tools of the music scene and like manifested a whole new way of making music just using like the simplest, most straightforward um, stuff, you know. And they've inspired a generation of people. And now they're working with some of those people. Like Billy Nomates is a friend of theirs, and she does music that she still she still makes all of her music on GarageBand, which is the free music production software that you get when you buy a, an Apple computer. Mm-hmm. Like she still uses that for making her records, and she's you know been on top of the pops and everything, and I think that's that's inspirational that, that people are like using the most pedestrian, the most simple tools, and they're getting into the practice of doing things and being creative rather than getting hung up on you know wanting a, a vintage Les Paul uh, or something like that. Like you know rather than getting hung up on any of the procedural stuff or any of this like applied status to doing things in a particular way, like people are just hacking away with whatever they can get their hands on. They're making records on their iPhones, you know? And, and I think given that I own a recording studio and it's, you know, and it's hard enough to make a living during regular times uh, and people normalizing that kind of uh, guerrilla recording is ultimately going to be bad for recording studios like (laughs) i but i think culturally and in terms of access and in terms of just like broadening the creative world i think it's fucking fantastic i'm really thrilled that people are doing things this way do you have like a fantasy date in your head i david roth was my co-host for the first episode we talked about our fantasy dates mine's august where i think i feel like in august like I will, like my my wife and I will go to the kids' house and have dinner and eat inside, and we will hug when we greet and hug when we leave. And do you have like a fantasy date for when both studios are booked for the whole week, and you are and you are sitting around with with your two other bandmates planning a tour? Man, I have learned not to make any predictions. Like when we canceled our tour a year ago. When we, we were in the middle of our tour and we canceled it, we had plans in the subsequent weeks 
to do the last bit of arranging on some new material and finish the recording of an album that we had started a year prior. So we had an, an entire album that we wanted to finish and wrap up in June of last year. And, well, then we thought, well, okay, we won't be able to play finish these shows, and it looks like our spring tour is going to cancel, so we can use that time to wrap up this album. And it looks like there's not going to be a World Series of Poker, so I won't be going to Vegas, so I'll be around and we can do it then. And then it didn't then it it got worse and it was like well okay well we can't travel we can't bring todd down from minneapolis and risk him traveling in this shit so let's just wait it out let's plan on doing it in september so then we we moved some live shows from midsummer to september and then you know come july it's like obvious that the shit in september is not going to happen so we you mm-hmm. know we had some stuff planned for november and december we moved that stuff to april and well now it's obvious that that april shit isn't going to happen and the spring tour that was canceled for may they rescheduled everything an annual year later just rescheduled everything a year later and now it's obvious that that's not going to happen so like i've i've learned my lesson not to anticipate anything just you know like this disease has to run its course, and when it's over, we'll know. Uh, until that point, like putting any expectations on it, I think is at, is really foolish and dangerous. Uh, Steve, I, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, I know you have important studio work to get to. I, I, uh, I, 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 this is after I, me telling you for 20 minutes that there's nothing going on. Right. <laughs> um, you got to clean the laptop. You said you're going to clean the laptop. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. I, I got to get on my disinfection protocol. I am, I am proud to say that Electrical Audio and, and the, the amazing group at Electrical Audio, as well as much of the, the Tuesday Night Poker Gang, uh, is where the theme song for the podcast was recorded. You can hear Steve yelling baseball podcast and can of corn during the theme song and, and i just wanted to thank you for putting that together that was a, a remarkable gesture and i have all the outtakes as well i have i have secrets yeah every, i have secret steve the, albini songs <laughs> every one of us was a every everybody that worked on that session is a a friend and and uh fellow tuesday game poker player uh of kevin so it like the whole idea was that we wanted it to be a like a, a pure gesture of support for one of ours <laughs> It, it, I, 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 the first time I, I heard it, I, you sent me the files, and I just hit play, and I spit out my drink. <laughs> I was not expecting third wave ska, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, it's the sort of thing, like, I've <laughs> studiously avoided ska for the better part of 50 years, but, uh, you know, it, it, it turns out it only takes about 15, 20 minutes to get it down. There's a time... <laughs> My wife oh. cannot listen to this now because she is a younger person who likes third wave ska, unfortunately. So uh, she cannot listen. I'll tell her not. Well, she can listen next week when our guest will be Gwen Stefani. She, <laughs> she, grew, up with, she grew up with that shit. So Thanks for coming on, Stephen. I'll hopefully see you Man, on Tuesday. Man, thanks for having me. See you on sorry, Tuesday. It was so for, depressing. Yeah, no, we'll, I'll see you on Tuesday for, for more bad poker played by myself, and we'll make fun of uh, 80s and 90s supergroups again. All right. Okay, I'll talk to you later. Thanks for having me. Pick it up, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up.
our musical guest this week is Ranges. Ranges is an instrumental post-rock band from Bozeman, Montana. We're big sky country where all the great bands come from. Uh, their last album, Babel, was released in 2019. If uh, We talked about this earlier. If you like vinyl, it's available on vinyl through A Thousands Are Music. You can also find them in all the usual places. Spotify, Apple Music, Bandcamp, all that stuff. Uh, thanks to Ranges for letting us play the music on the show. In particular, drummer Mark Levy, who got in touch with me because he is good buddies with, uh, I think, our mutual friend, Corey Schwartz, over at MLBAM. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah he, Corey sent him my way. To the extent uh, anyone's really a friend with Corey. If you ever get to hang out with Corey, make, oh, yeah. sure, make sure he shows you the Ramones tattoo. It is, I, uh, I've seen that so many times, and every single time, it's like, have you seen my tattoo? I'm like, Corey, 10 years running. Okay, here it is again. Well, here's the thing. Every time he says, do you want to see it? I actually do want to see it. It is. It's a badass tattoo. It's like this entire back piece of it's, the Ramones logo. It's a remarkable, remarkable thing. When he says, do you want to see my tattoo? I go, yes, yes, I do. I, I want to see his tattoo, and I want to hear him tell the story, even though he's told it 15 times about his foot race with Brady Anderson. Those are all the, the good things. <laughs> I remember that year. About, what's, what city was that? Was that, that was Orlando. No, that it was, was Orlando. Because okay. like, in between the Swan and Dolphin Hotel, that big, long condo uh-huh. there over the little lake at Disney World, that's where it took place. Yes. Oh. So there was, there was also, I, I want to say there was a race in Nashville with less famous, with, with Corey and a less famous person. Because <laughs> he in, didn't learn. In like the, like the overhang hallway outside. Bad um, thing, bad things happen at the Opryland. I, I, you know, uh, yeah, it, if, I, if I never have to go there again, I will have achieved something. <laughs> Some horrible, horrible place. Uh, let's get into emails we got emails if you want to have your email read on the show or you just want to send me an email or we read them all or i read them all and respond to some uh send it to chinmusic at fangrass.com first email comes from andrew andrew says given your experience in a front office what insight do you have on why teams seem so reluctant to do better by their minor leaguers even if we leave the pay at its current hilariously low levels, wouldn't a team benefit from its players having in-season housing and food taken care of? Russell Carlton wrote a piece on this recently over at Baseball Prospectus that goes into better detail, but I've long thought this would be a relatively simple way that a team might find a competitive advantage in player development. Thoughts? Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, that's my first thought. So, it's always nice to be to be better to people. It could be better to people. And, and you know, you have had, um, so but, hey, first of all, my leaders are getting paid more this year. It's still hilariously low, to use your adjective. Um, it's not enough, um, but they did get a small raise. Uh, they, they need to be paid more. Teams have done much better in terms of uh, food, for sure. Um, most lunches and almost all dinners are taken care of. And, you know, a lot of teams have hired nutritionists and making sure team you know, players are getting healthy meals and not eating fast food every day. Um, at the same time, these are young men and they can make decisions on their own. And many of them do eat fast food every day for their choice. Um, and it's, it can be a, a, a challenge. Uh, the housing situation is an absolute joke at most Miley places. Um, still leaning on a, a primitive, you know, baseball mom situation where people are willing to, to you know, let players live with them and things like that. I've always thought setting up like a real, you know, a real kind of housing environment for players uh, would be much, much better for them and for their development. It's a, it's a garbage situation that teams take advantage of because it's free. You know, it's, it's, it's that 
it's, do you, you know. do you think that's going to get better with the minor league real alignment? Because these are much longer development contracts now with the affiliates, and they're a little more centralized and stuff. Do you think there will be any sort of move to do something different about housing? I hope so. I don't. I'm not absolutely not super optimistic. You know, my my shitty answers to why teams don't do better because it costs a lot of money. You know, and, and, and what they won't say is because most of these guys are never going to be part of our major league team. So why are right. we going to spend money on that? And we're going to pay special close attention to the guys that we are actually tracking. And the ones that they are actually tracking often are you got big bonuses and, and they mm-hmm. are already spending some of their own money to have a nice apartment. Your, your point though, about them being young men, I think is well taken. And I thought of this the other day because I, I was reminded of that story about Christian Yellick um, eating Chipotle like 142 days in a row or whatever that was. Um, someone had, my daughter <laughs> wanted Chipotle. I was, like I was horribly sharing texts with her on Twitter because they were funny of her begging for Chipotle. Mm-hmm. And then someone brings up the Christian Yellick thing. And, uh, and I said, now, was that true? Did that happen? And then like Christian Yellick actually tweeted, yeah, that happened. <laughs> well, that's and, great. And so, you know, and I think someone else asked him, well, why did you do that? And he's like, I like Chipotle. I mean, that, that's the it's answer. It's very simple. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not complicated. No, yeah. So right. it's like you know, even if these guys had you know three hundred dollars a day for per diems, I know I have a teenage boy. They're still going to go and get baconators. I mean, before I actually you know went on a different diet and started eating much better uh, a couple of years ago, if I was on the road, I guarantee you one of the very first things I would Google for is the closest Panda Express. Oh yeah. And if I was on the road, I was having Panda one or two nights on that trip for sure, no question, no question. Um. But so, yeah, it's teams could do better. Um, they are doing better in some ways, especially on the food side. The housing situation's a joke, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Uh, Adam writes, could you talk about the Caribbean series in the DR next year? I would like to attend, having been to the one in Puerto Rico last year. Uh, I hope it's okay by December. I'm not 100% sure it will be, or January, I guess. Um, if you can go. For the love of God, go. If you've never been to a baseball game in the Dominican Republic, uh, figure out a way to, to change that, I guess would be what I say. It's it's phenomenal. The fans are absolutely um, ravenous about baseball. Baseball in the Dominican Republic is a religion. It is everything that you hear it is. Um, I always tell the story. The first time I went there, um, one thing I always like to do if I ever go to like a really foreign, like, you know, a foreign country that I've never been to is to have the local news on at night to just see what that looks like. And the sports report is literally just the Dominican players. It was like the, like the guy led off with, like the Twins beat the Red Sox 5-3. to three. David Ortiz went 1-4 for four with a double. Here's the double. Cut to the highlight. <laughs> right? It's amazing. It, you know, it's it's it, the way they it's the way they they just come. It's, it's like players. in it's like in America, or like certainly in Ohio. If if you know an entire city block was blown up in Kazakhstan, the the lead story here would be an Ohioan visited the same place a year ago, and this is what they knew. <laughs> I mean, so I'm glad that that impulse is everywhere. Yeah, and it's amazing. And you know, I was actually there once when Escojito won the title, and and like unintentionally ended up in the middle of their parade down the streets of San Domingo at night. Um, cause we were just trying to get back from, a, from, to the hotel from a restaurant and all of a sudden there's all this commotion. We're like, oh, there's a parade for the Arescojita winning. Uh, it's great. It's loud. Fans scream. There's bands. There's cheerleaders. It's a, it's a damn good time. If you can go, go. If you want to hit me up, I'll tell you where to stay. Like it's, it's, everyone should go to winter league games in the Dominican. It's, it's 
absolutely phenomenal and, and, and very unlike what you're used to here in terms of just pure kind of rowdiness and chaos. Um, and as a fan of rowdiness and chaos, um, highly recommend it. It certainly you're... beats the hell out of sitting in the club seats at uh, Comerica with a bunch of people checking their phones and stuff. <laughs> you ever been to the DR? I, I have not. I really want to do that someday. And I, I really tried hard to get NBC to send me there one winter. And mm-hmm. and no one would bite at all. They're like, yeah, forget it, forget it. But I, I really want to do that. <laughs> it's not that expensive even. That's what like, I said. I actually priced it out, and uh, I talked to a few people with a couple of clubs about where I might stay and everything. And I yeah. had this little sheet, and I, I, uh, I, I submitted it, and I could just, I could hear them laughing over the their love of football. So it was not <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> you get you get round trips for like six hundred bucks. It was going to be cheaper than the spring training boondoggle they would send me on every year happily. So I and those hotels it. are expensive as hell during spring training. And I know, yeah. Like it, it, I would go to you know stay in Tempe or something every year and you know eat well and and get a rental car and Phoenix rental cars are ridiculous. I probably spent three times as much each year at the Cactus League trips than I would have for a DR trip. Right. But they just they just weren't having it. Uh, our next email comes from Elijah. He says, I enjoyed your draft notes. Player Raft, do you watch any of the games live or only after the fact so you can skip through and watch the matchups of interest? Or a better question would be to describe your process of approaching a weekend of baseball that you are not attending in person. Um, you know, obviously we have, it's better than ever as far as like college baseball and getting ready for the draft just because there's so many, you know, if you have like ESPN Plus and other streaming services, there's so much more baseball on. Um Eric Longenhagen and I will, I'm sure, talk about this more in writing later. But, you know, we also were able to this year, um, because we're not traveling, use some of our travel budget to get uh, a video accounts with a company called Synergy that, that, that provides a video service. You're really just a pro team. So we were able to get a couple of accounts there and you literally have like a whole video library of college players, which is helping us immensely with our draft work. So um, I watch games live and kind of focus on individual players, but uh, you know, Monday and even the day after I'm, I'm spending a lot of times with that and just kind of watching individual players. It's, it's, I'll be honest with you, like at college baseball, I have had some mixed feelings, you know, and watching spring games, they have the mask rules for the spring games and, and some teams have been better than others in enforcing it, but some are really enforcing it. Um, I was watching Clemson, South Carolina over the weekend uh, in South Carolina and I had to turn it off. I was so kind of upset by what I was like every, every time they made a crowd shot, I would just, it would just be like head palm. I can't believe this is happening. It was maybe I'm going to estimate 15% masked up and, and, Mm. and a little too many people for my taste. And they would just show, you know, all of a sudden like this group of like, you know, 20 college students all without masks yelling and screaming and having fun and eating and talking to each other. And it's just, it just made me uncomfortable to watch, to be honest with you. Yikes. Yikes. Um, but that's college baseball for you. And, and it's, I don't know, I've enjoyed watching some of the players and getting, you know, acquainted some of the draft names for the next couple of years, but it's, it's ugly out there, but yeah, I, I watch games and then I catch up on players through a video service. So, you know, we try to watch as much as I can. Um, Craig, let's talk about you for a second. My favorite topic. Absolutely. So, um, like so many of us, 2020 and then the pandemic affected your life greatly. Yes. Um, NBC Sports did what NBC Sports did. Yeah, it was it was fun. They they basically took an axe and cut roughly ten percent off of everything, and I was in the ten percent. And uh, uh, it you know 
it was one of those things. If you got to get fired, um, I highly recommend getting fired by NBC. I, I, I have no ill will with them at all. They, they handled it very professionally and they were very good to me and my other fellow firees. Um, so it was, it sucked, but it was also, that was the longest I'd ever done any job. I'd, I'd been there doing the little blogger thing for 11 years. Wow. And I yeah, that long. I, yeah, I, I practiced law for 11 years, but at multiple different places. And then I was at NBC for 11 years and I, I'm somebody who can't do anything for too terribly long. And the fact that I had done it that long was kind of weird in hindsight. So, uh, you know, it happened way more people had way worse things happen to them than that. So no crying at all, but yeah, it was definitely a change. So, so now you are, you have the cup of coffee newsletter at Substack, which is what all the cool kids are doing. No, I'm um, doing it and a bunch of nerds I want to stuff into a locker are doing it, but that's okay. And so you, uh, so you have a Substack newsletter and what that is, is like, Hey, I'm a person. I do cool work. You give me, in your case, I believe it's $5 a month. Six actually, $6 but that's okay. A month. Well, right now, now, now it's on sale, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> and you know, so give this individual a, 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 a nominal amount of money, one Starbucks coffee. And when you you write a newsletter every morning, I assume it's every morning. For, I do, yeah, I do it five yeah. days a week. Yeah, and and you send it, and if you're a subscriber, you get this. Um, what led? What we'll get into this later. Like, but what led to your decision? Like, did you, you know, when you thought about what I'm going to do next? Like, right. how did you end up saying, you know, what I think I'm going to try this out? Because it's this that it's a gutsy move. I mean, honestly, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to bet on myself completely here and, and have no kind of support system or, or, or be affiliated with anything. This is just going to be me. A little scary, a little scary. I, I think about a year earlier, I had started thinking, cause you know, I got into like the 10 year point and I thought, well, Jesus, what I had been away from practicing a lot. I'm still licensed, but I don't know anything. It's been forever since I, you know, <laughs> like Obama was new when, when I last practiced law. And so I realized that I couldn't just step out and go get another job really easily. What am I going to do if NBC goes away and everything goes away? You know, everything dies. So, um, well, I do. And I, I looked around to the various things that you could do. And I thought, well, could I go to another publication? I'm like, no, I'm fairly unemployable by, you know, almost every major sports media company. NBC was very good to me and gave me a lot of independence. But at the same time, it also let me demonstrate that you probably don't want to hire me if you're ESPN or somebody like that. <laughs> um, so, they, you know, there are various options. I, I have a personal blog and I thought, well, I can monetize that somehow and get ads. Well, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't know how to do ads. Uh, Patreon is a thing where people just sort of mm-hmm. donate what they want and everything. And and then Substack had started to come around and I'm not sure what exactly led me there. I feel like Joe Poznanski or somebody started a Substack. Um, and I thought, well, that's something and it seemed easy. So what drew me to it was okay, I could just write what I want to write whenever I want to write it. And then administratively, it'd be easy. It's just like a turnkey solution of they process payments and people, it just magically shows up and I don't have to do anything but what I want to do, which is write all day. Fantastic. Yeah, so I just figured, okay, worst case scenario, I launch that thing and 37 people, five of which are related to me, sign up and no one else cares and I don't make any money and then I'll just have to go find a job, which I'd have to do anyway. So I figured I'd give it a try. And um, it's worked. Amazingly, it has worked. So you have more than 37 subscribers. I do. I do. I, I tend to be a little cagey about how many subscribers. Oh, no, I no. Have. I don't no, want to no, get, no. Yeah, believe me. No, I'm going no. to get your business. My, but the answer is no, like, but this, I bring this but, up. This, but this is working. It is working. And I actually, I bring it up. I say that because now I'm starting to be less cagey about it in that um, I had made a plan that within a year, 
of launching. I launched in August and I had a, I had a bogey of what I wanted to hit as far as subscribers slash income within a year. And I hit it last week. And so I am extraordinarily pleased with how this has gone. That's fantastic. Um, this is, this is my full-time job and will be my full-time job until people get tired of me. Do you have any, I, 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 how surprised are you that you got there this quick? Very. Um, I mean, I, I had reason to believe there, there's a thing about like these sub stacks and Patreons and things that a lot of people I don't get because there've been all these think pieces about them. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not about how big you could be. It's about how, you know, I, for lack of a better term, even though I hate this term, it's like how loyal your readership is or how strong, yeah. how strong your, your readership is versus how wide it is. And you, if if you were a writer for the Washington Post and you just wrote all kinds of various things and people came to you because you're at the Washington Post, you can't necessarily expect a bunch of people are going to follow you um, to a private thing like a Substack. But if you have sort of a very personal based readership, and I, I kind of had that, be, you know, I wasn't yeah, writing yeah, yeah. the Ken Rosenthal transactions and, and just general baseball news. I was sort of writing my own little, this is what I think about stuff. This is what grinds my gears kind of column. And, you know, did I, I didn't get a tenth of the sort of traffic that someone else might have gotten, but the tenth that I got, you know, they were willing to follow me. And that's the key to these things is you got to have sort of a readership that wants not just to hear what your topic area is, but what you have to say about it. And I'm very, very lucky that I've got a lot of people that they've told me that, hey, we used to read you back in the blog spot days back in 2007. And I, those are those are my subscribers. And it's sort of just mm -hmm. built from there. And, you know, obviously you have it's yours like you do, no one's calling you to tell you what to write about you can just do whatever you want to yes is that i imagine that in general that's a good thing but does that ever kind of cripple you or freeze you i i find it to be freeing so far it's it's yeah i haven't gone like a full year on the baseball news cycle and obviously this last year was so weird um you know i started this thing in the middle of the weirdest season in baseball history um, so, you know, the, there's a rhythm of baseball news, right? This is what happens in the spring. This is what you write about as you're leading up to the all-star break. This is during the playoff race, blah, blah, blah. This is the hot stuff. Um, so I haven't gone through that full cycle yet. Mm -hmm. Um, there is a comfort in that cycle sometimes of having either, I, I didn't really have a strong editor or anything You know like what's that. next. Yeah. You know what's next. I, I have to, I now have to write about who are the MVP candidates and stuff. Um, not having to do that if I don't want to is very freeing. Um, like we were talking before, I, you know, I don't care about the Hall of Fame anymore. I used to spend my entire December and early January writing about potential Hall of Fame candidates who's on the ballot for next year. Not necessarily because I was interested in it, but because that's what is expected of you. I don't but have to so, do that now. But you were being, like someone on NBC was saying, write about the Hall of Fame. Yeah, generally, in a broad way. I, I, I generally control what I wrote, but for the most part, they got to know, oh, this is the time of year when we want to promote something about the Hall of Fame right. to the main page, so make sure we have Hall of Fame content. I don't have that anymore, and it's kind of They got nice. to at least backseat drive a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and so it's it's really liberating that I don't have to do that if I don't want to, and the fact that you know I could spend, as I have, I could spend... A, 500 words talking about a Columbo episode I watched the night before. Just I could do whatever I want. It's kind of nice. Is baseball in every issue? Everyone, yeah. Um, so I, it, everyone starts during the season anyway. My the the thing that I've been doing since 2008 is I do a daily recap. So that that continues. 
Yes. Yeah, that continues every single morning during the season. It's a recap and it's up before 7 a.m., a recap of every game of the night before. And my recaps are just sort of like riffing recaps. They're, you know, if you want to read a box score, read a box score. I'm going to just talk about weird shit that happened. Um, and then like a baseball news digest, you know, here are the five things that happened yesterday and what you should think about them. And then when I have room, it, I call it other stuff. And I just write about whatever the hell I want, whether it's politics, some things my kids did, some album I just got into, some movie I just saw and, and write about that. But it's baseball first, definitely. Now, so, so, you know, I think in some ways it was, you know, like you said, during the season, it's kind of what, you know, it was the starting point for everything you did was this daily wrap up of, of the games. Um, you said it's out by 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, often, if I can't sleep, I look at Twitter and you're already tweeting at like 530 in the morning here. <laughs> yeah. um, and and getting this out early kind of helped kind of define what you were doing. So people could start their day with that. Um, what time do you wake up in the morning? Most days I'm up no later than 530. A lot of days before that. I'm never, I, I literally have, other than to get to an airport, I've not used an alarm for like two years. I just wake up. I is, just, old man stuff. Is this a natural biorhythm for you? Or is this something that, that you adjusted to because you had to get that out when you were with NBC? No, it was before that, actually. If anything, I wouldn't be a baseball writer if it wasn't for the biorhythm. Because um, when I was, you know, before I had kids and everything, and when I was practicing law, I was like anybody else. If you let me sleep till 10, I'd sleep till 10. And when I started blogging about baseball in 2006, 2007 in earnest, what had happened was I had, a, I had my daughter, and then in 2005, we had my son. And so I had a baby and like a year and a half old kid at home. Mm-hmm. And when the baby came, I was then in charge of being up to make sure my daughter, the older one, I, I had to deal with her while my, my wife dealt with the baby. And that was hard for me because I wasn't up that early, and my daughter used to wake up at 5 freaking in the morning. And so I would wake up, and if I was up before her and I had nothing to do, I would just start writing about baseball because I hated my life about everything else. And I was like, well, I'm going to write about baseball. I have an hour before this kid wakes up that I have to deal with now and might as well do something. And I started just writing baseball stuff at 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning, and putting it out wherever you put things out in 2006. And baseball writers work at night. Almost all of them file at night. They follow the games. They, they, yeah. they write stuff 11, midnight, whatever. There was nobody up at 7 in the morning writing fresh baseball content for people. And most readers of this content work in offices, are getting email at home, are living regular nine to five lives. And so I just had this niche of, I was the only one in that field writing in the morning. And so that's how I got sort of going with this. And that's how NBC noticed me is because I was the one weird guy that had stuff going every day on a regular schedule. And I've kept that up for like 15 years now. Cause yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, I generally get going around 10 or so. That's, that's kind of, uh, lunchtime for me. Yeah, it just kind of amazes me. Like, I can't imagine doing it. I'm not a, I'm, 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 it's not that I'm not a morning person, it's just I am a night person. I think it's just genetic. My dad wakes up at like 4 a.m. and like washes the car. And I just, just, <laughs> when I hit like about 32, that just started to be my thing. And, um, and now I'm like, I'm noticing my daughter is 17 and, and she'll even on Saturdays and stuff, she'll come down at like 630 in the morning. And I'm like, it's starting. It's starting for you too. Another oh, generation so, of horrible you're, sleepers. You're so screwed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I'm thrilled to like, yeah, I get going at like 10. Like we, it's, it's, you know, it's like one thirty in the morning and we're looking for shit on Netflix. Oh no, no, I can't, I can't. What I, time do you go to bed? 
most nights uh around 11 like i i can get by six hours of sleep is is pretty solid for me i could do six hours for weeks on end without having a deficit right if i get seven that's like a really really nice night um if i get less than six for a couple nights then i'm starting to hurt a little bit but six hours or so is good usually you know the 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 early games the east coast games will end right what 10 30 you know quarter to 11 I, i turn that off go to bed is usually what happens um we're just getting going. Um, <laughs> so, so you have, you know, obviously you have the Substack going. It's going well. Just uh, look for Craig Calcaterra, a cup of coffee on Substack, and you subscribe. But you did not bud. But I, you, I know you have some little weird side things. You do a podcast, yeah, with, with Stephen Goldman and Mike Ferrin, where you talk about Bob Dylan for some godforsaken reason. Because um, we are just middle-aged men, heart and soul. We're middle-aged men of a previous generation, so we have to uh, talk about Bob Dylan. <laughs> I look. I I think I'm older than you, and no, I I don't know. I'm just I don't know where the D- Dylan thing for me came from. Because otherwise, I'm listening. I grew up listening, you know, the Pixies and stuff like that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But the Dylan thing just was always there and always will be. <laughs> do you do you have other things you want to do beyond the Substack thing that you want to try to make time for? Um, well, I've got a thing I'm supposed to be making time for right now, and I'm having a hell of a time making time for it. I've, I, I'm writing a book, um, and it's for a small press, um, it's a Midwestern press called Belt Publishing, and they tend to do uh, political stuff, like kind of progressive political stuff and social history and municipal history and stuff like that. And they write about the Rust Belt in Appalachia and things like that. And I've gotten to know the, the editor there, and she's like, you should write a sports book. Basically, she didn't say it this way, but basically, we need a commie sports book because you're a lefty weirdo. And uh, so I'm writing a book about fandom, and I'm, it's tentatively titled Rethinking Fandom, and it's kind of just a collection of rants that I've had about the nature of being a sports fan and how it doesn't have to necessarily be the way we think of sports fandom. And I'm writing it now. It's, it's very hard to do when I'm doing the newsletter, too, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, working, I'm working through that. But, uh, so I've got that, and then I do a local politics column uh, in Columbus here uh, for the it used to be the Columbus Alternative Paper, but now I think it's owned by the regular paper called Columbus Alive. That yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I grew I do up in a, Central Ohio. Yeah, yeah. You you know it. Um, it's 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 you know the other paper went away, and then Columbus Alive got bought by the Dispatch, and so now it's it's still kind of an alternative paper. It deals with entertainment and music mostly, but I write a, right. a local state politics column for them every other week, which is kind of fun. Um, but yeah, mostly I I think once the book thing is done. I, I might do some sort of weird podcast of my own because, you know, are you really a middle-aged white guy if you don't have a podcast? It's that, the that's, law at this it, point. I think it's the law. They're going to put I, me I, into I, some sort of, you know, re-education camp or something like that if I don't sure. have one. It was one of Biden's first executive orders, I think. <laughs> hey, you, hipster middle-aged dude yeah. with the horn and glasses, get your podcast on. Sure, get your podcast going. Go buy a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when's the book due? Uh, I'm supposed to have it in in May. Um, it's probably going to be published next spring. Uh, we had thought about maybe getting it out this fall, but I don't think that's going to happen. But uh, I have to finish it between now and May. And, uh, you know, I, I think the idea is mostly just the the Bill Simmons model of fandom of we are a group hug of a city and we all must devote ourselves to this team, I just think is weird because I didn't grow up that way. Mm-hmm. And... I don't think you have to view fandom in that kind of way. And I think it's okay to be a fair weather fan. And I think it's okay not to root for a team, but to root for players no matter where they go and stuff. And so it's that kind of thing. And you did write something a while ago that was about a family crime. 
Oh, yeah, that was fun. Uh, I, I'd like to do something else with that, by the way. I was going to ask if there's anything more to go with that. It was kind of amazing. So, yeah, my, my great-great-grandmother murdered my great-great-grandfather with an axe in Detroit, Michigan in 1910. Just walked in while he was sleeping one morning, just bludgeoned him to death with an axe, went next door to the neighbor and said, hey, my husband's dead, by the way. Got arrested and lived the rest of her life in a mental institution. Um, thankfully, my great-grandfather had been born already, so I could be here. Um, and so I, I, no one in my family knew about that, really. There was like kind of stories about maybe uh-huh. that had happened. And then so I just spent a couple years ago, I just spent a bunch of time doing genealogy and then deep dives into the news and archives and things like that up in Detroit and just kind of figured out the whole story. And it was it was really weird. And, you know, I, I'm not really close to that side of the family at all because it basically got destroyed by that murder. Um but I, I found it fascinating to write about, and I wrote the whole story. It's on my website, com, and it's about Nellie Niffen, and she just took an axe and killed her husband. And um, it got a lot of response. I made a little yeah. mini book out of it, and people still like make jokes. It's funny. I, I laugh about it because it's so distant. It's not like it happened in my family. Right. It I, it's, feel not, like it. Yeah, it's, not, it's not too early. For and so like every day, I've got this friend named Chris Jaffe who pays attention to historical events and he has put on his little historical calendar every year the day that my great-great-grandmother killed my great-great-grandfather and reminds me of happy nelly day um i i've gotten a couple of people that have asked me if i wanted to do something with it someone was like you know have you thought about turning this into a, a movie treatment or something and i'm like yeah mm-hmm. but i'm not gonna do that unless somebody actually really wants to do it but uh you know i'm always open if you if you got offers give me a call secret family stuff's kind of weird it is really weird. Um, yeah. And from that, I went on and did this genealogy project. I'm not interested in genealogy in the same way that a lot of people are. Like, I don't I don't think of my family roots or anything. We've got so many adoptions and messed up people, and, and we weren't close with extended family. So I don't care about it for a way of, like, glorifying my family. But I wanted right. to learn stuff. And I looked into both. If anything, the murder side of the family is the most normal thing in my family going back, like, 400 years. There are all kinds of terrible people and people that just died in stupid circumstances and everything else. It's it's great fun um, to learn about that. And the fact that any of us are alive, given what our ancestors did is amazing. Yeah. My sister's into it. Um, both my parents have passed away at this point. Um, and my sister's gotten very into the genealogy. I'm not that into it. And I don't really, it, like we were never, I have uncles that I literally have never met. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, it just, we were never close family. Never, like, there were no family reunions. I didn't really know my cousins. What, I, we just, it just wasn't. Oh, we yeah, same. We, totally. we weren't one of those families. And, but there's all sorts of just weird shit that you just, ne- I just never got into. Like, I, you know, I remember, um, you know, my mom was going through jewelry in her, in her house. It's like, oh, what is this? And she's like, oh, they, you, you, my, your, my grand, your grandfather gave that to me. And so I said, oh, where'd you get this? She goes, oh, I'm sure it was stolen. <laughs> what? What are you? What? And yeah, why? You, my my mother, you always kind of take with a little bit of grain of salt. She was bipolar one. She said weird things sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, what? She goes, yeah, your grandfather. Um, yeah, he did a lot of criminal stuff for a couple decades. Oh uh, yeah. It's like, what do you mean? She said, well, like you know, he worked for like organized crime stuff, and they stole. Stuff. I'm like, what? And then I just, I said, man, I don't really like to talk about. It. I'm like, okay, and then that was it. You know, I don't, you know, I didn't pursue it. Um, and there's all sorts of weird, like every family has, it's amazing. Like, um, my mom was an identical twin. Her sister is still alive, but her sister's, I think it was her first husband. There's all sorts of weird missing husbands and stuff too. I think it was her first husband, like, um, in the seventies, um, died suddenly and later found out that he was 
probably taken out by lung sharks. Oh. You know, he didn't just die suddenly. He, you know, he was in trouble and then and, and that's what happens. It's like all sorts of this weird shit that comes up and like, my sister's finding like, like all this stuff and it's like, isn't this amazing? Like, I just, I wonder if every family has this. I think they do. Yeah, I, I I think that's definitely true. It's the same with me. I, I didn't know anything about my extended family growing up. In addition to that murder, it's like, you know, I had a my my like a great uncle who owned this this nightclub in Detroit that was definitely completely part of the Jewish mob. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, you go if I go back several hundred years, I had the the reason one part of my family came to this country is because they literally were like arbitraging the Black Plague. Like they got rich by buying up lands of people who died of the plague and then becoming landlords and stuff and they got really rich and then they picked the wrong side of the English Civil War and got <laughs> lost all their money and had to come to America and be just poor roofers and that's like the family that turned into the murderers so it's like it's just crazy stuff and then I found out I was like related to somebody who was like a, a gold medalist or a medalist for one of the 80s Olympic uh, gymnast teams i forget which one but it, it's just like weird things happen that way i don't know it i don't care because i don't like i have no contact with anybody right, other than my exactly. parents and my brothers i'm not sitting and talking i'm not like weaving some tapestry about you know the calcaterra family which isn't even my family anyway so because of all those adoptions and stuff but it's it's just it's a fun thing to do when you're at home all the time and all you're doing is being on the internet yeah it's beyond the rocks i have a friend who's um his great-grandparents came over from russia in the 19 teens and they were supporters of the revolution and communists they just didn't think it was organized and going to work out and so, <laughs> and so they left and they came to america um, which is a great story uh let's let's move on as we finish with a moment of culture as always we talk about something non-baseball that that got we got into at some point in the last week um, after having it in my watch queue for a few days, we finally stopped and sat down and watched Nomadland ah, on Hulu. Yes. Have you seen this? I did. We watched it like a, a week ago Sunday. Excellent. So we watched it a couple nights ago. Um, for those who don't know, it stars Francis McDormand. It is based on a nonfiction book about uh, older people, people are, you know, our age and older who are uh, affected by the country's economic situation in unique ways and basically live lives as like out of a van as 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 they, they go where the work is if you will they work you know amazon during the holiday then they go work on a harvest somewhere and and not homeless by choice as much as they're just simply without home this is just their lifestyle um uh, francis mcdormand bought the book rights and then actually it, it's a kind of a weird backward story where the actors bought the book rights and then hired the director um uh, Chloe Zhao, I think, and um, a it's a it's really good. I don't think it's like the most amazing thing I ever saw, but it's really good. It's a sixty-five on the scouting scale. Um, it's beautiful. It's gorgeously filmed. Did you like it? I I loved it. Um, I I thought it was fantastic. I I had a bit of an insight into that world. My it's not the same kind of a thing, but like when my parents retired at first, they they did the full time RV thing. You know, people oh, yeah. do that sometimes. And there was a huge intersection of that. Now, you know, granted, my parents are driving up in the nice big RV, but they're also doing work camp stuff is what they call it. You know, you, you camp somewhere for a while and in exchange for a free camping place. You, you know, work in the gift shop or something. And so my parents met a bunch of people like this. Yeah. And I, was, I was trying to explain this movie to them and they don't want to watch it because they're like, oh, we know all that stuff. I'm like, no, you got to watch it. But uh, I found it fascinating just partially because of how beautiful it was. It's a beautifully shot movie. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but uh, Chloe Zhao, the director, her I think it was her first movie. She did a movie called The Rider mm-hmm. uh, four years ago. And it was very similar in that the almost everybody in it, they weren't actors. Like in, in Nomadland, it's Francis McDormand and... Um, Oh, uh, David Strathairn or whatever his name is. He, you know, they were act those. They were the actors, but everybody else, they were like real people, like, they, based on and, themselves. And yeah, I was gonna say not just real people, like real people who live this this nomad lifestyle. They're real nomads. Yeah, they're the actual people, and they were great. Right, and the rider that she did then, it was the same sort of deal, and it was about sort of rodeo people on a on a on a Native American rodeo people in this community. And there were the actual people who did this. And she just sort of has this amazing ability to film real people in their real lives. Granted, it's a lifestyle that we're not aware of or, or don't think about very much. And they're just sort of getting these sort of natural performances from them that aren't really performances, which is weird because like her next thing she's going to do is a big Marvel movie called The Eternals. Um, so I don't think you're wow. going to get I don't think you're going to get natural uh, non-actors in that one, considering they're dealing with like these omnipotent, uh, you know, uh, immortal uh, space beings i've never seen a comic book movie all the way through any of them if you know if you and if you haven't by now you don't need to it's one of those things that you're either into it or you're not and no right. matter how much it has taken over the cultural zeitgeist and i'm into this stuff i've seen them all yeah um it's not essential in any way right it's it's candy and you can have it's okay to have candy sometimes yeah, that's why I laugh when you see like this week on Twitter and stuff, people get into the, what are the politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's a it, comic book. It really doesn't matter. Actually, yeah. I, I did see the Joker movie. Does that count? Uh, I don't know. Because I actually didn't see that one. So that it, probably is not, good... not It's not good. No. And I almost see anything that, uh, that Joaquin Phoenix does. And um, I didn't see that. Speaking of using non-actors, are, are you aware of the original treatment for the Moneyball movie? No. It was he was going to film that with the actual Oakland A's front office, like as a documentary or or no? Whoa! He was going to like make the movie, and the actors were going to be the people in the Oakland A's front office. That could not have been good. I would I would kill to to see this. I, I would too, but that's just because I you know I know who those good. people are. Yeah, but yeah, that, that was originally <laughs> how it was going to go. Like, would they like bring Paul to Podesta back, or would they? Yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, it's it's yeah, it's all very strange. <laughs> that might have but been that, one of the that, best disasters in cinematic history. Yeah, that, I mean, that was the original concept. Oh my um, god! Yeah. So, well, Craig, we've we've yammered enough. We yammered. Um, do you have anything you'd like to plug and or remind people of? How do people, if they want to subscribe to your Substack for six dollars a month, though now currently on sale, you said. Yeah, uh, through the weekend. Uh, I don't know when this is dropping, so it might be this over will, by then. This will drop on Friday. So All right, weekend. yeah, through the end of Sunday night. Spe- uh, it's a podcast special. Wow. Yeah, we'll call it the podcast special. Absolutely. Uh, you could just go to cupofcoffee.substack.com, or you can go to my Twitter. I got a link there. It's not hard to find. Um, and it's just, yeah, you can do it by a month, do it by a year. And, uh, What's every the special morning? weekend sale? It's 20% off. So uh, 20% off for a it's year. 480 so you, a month. Yeah, so four eighty a month for a year, or fifty two dollars for a year. Less than a cup of coffee at some places. It's like twenty cents a day, twenty three cents a day per uh, per installment of this daily newsletter. Outstanding. Anything else you want to plug? Man, I've plugged it enough already. Don't plug the the the, the Dylan thing. No, you know, no one cares. This is the Star Lark. This is an excuse for Mike Fair and Steve Goldman and I to get together every two weeks and talk about crap. We don't even care if anybody listens, to be honest. <laughs> Well, Craig, thanks for coming on, and thanks for your for thanks for your uh, 
your late registration, as it were, and then be able to come up in the classroom when things went south. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next week. Thank you.